when I speak to many, many, many startups, vast majority of them have a deficient understanding of the market and what the opportunity is. And I think that's really where you start to get on that path of bad investment. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you, my podcast listeners. And this list is based on the lessons I've learned from all of my guests, fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Leonard Lee. Leonard, are you ready to rock? Yes, I am totally ready to rock. Yeah. Actually, I saw Heavy you. metal. Rock and roll. I saw you <laughs> rock tipping and roll, a, baby. I saw you tipping a glass of wine or grape juice. So I think we're really yes. going to have something good. Oh, it's going to be fabulous. Fantastic. Just like wine. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, well, let me introduce you to the audience. Leonard Lee is a tech industry analyst and strategy consultant, a solution architect, an innovation coach, a startup and board advisor, a Trekkie, and a musician. He is the managing director and founder of Next Curve, a research advisory firm based in San Diego, California, focused on providing cross-domain ICT industry research and advisory services to enterprises startups, and technology vendors looking to differentiate themselves and win in a rapidly changing digital economy. Leonard, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Wow. You got it perfect. You got it down perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you having me on your show. Leonard Lee, Managing Director of Next Curve. And uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been in the consulting and the industry analyst game for better part of 28 years now. So I've been in the game for quite some time, worked with some of the big consulting firms and tech service providers. You know, I former managing partner at Gartner. So I worked on the consulting side, working with some of the biggest and baddest tech companies out there and helping them figure out where to place their bets next. So, you know, on this topic of investment and making the right bets is, is something that I'm heavily involved with and have been involved with quite some time. And with at Next Curve, we do a lot of startup advisory, also work with many of, again, the big tech companies and helping them figure out how to weather some of these tumultuous times that we face today, especially with the pandemic and the implications that it's had on the global economy and the tech economy but also with startups that are looking at new opportunities and making waves in the future of our digital economy. So again, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yep. It's great. I'm looking forward to having fun with you. This is, we are are going to have fun. We're going to have fun. And you know, I was on next curves website and I saw you had this quote, if you want to be successful consultant, you need to either be functional or technical and that was someone that you said my first consulting mentor said to you in 1997. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. curious, like, if you could describe, you know, where your expertise lies within the space, because I think it's a lesson that I've yes. been talking to my interns a lot over the last 12 months. Yes. It's like, 
what's your expertise? You know, you just have general yes. education. Where is your focus? So tell us a little bit yes. about your focus. I'll tell you what I'm an expert at. I am an expert at being a generalist. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yeah. And you know, when I tell people that I get that reaction, but if you really look at my background, it's very diverse. I have a technical functional strategy, you know, background. So I've, you know, from a consulting perspective, I've coded, I've, you know, implemented large global ERP implementations and projects. I've done global transformation projects for fortune 500 companies there's a lot of diversity in, in my background. And actually it's it counter to your typical consulting career path, right? Typically when you go into consulting, they, you know, you get kind of pigeonholed in certain domains where they say, look, you know, this is your path to becoming a partner, be really good at this one area, and then you will eventually become a partner. Well, I disregarded a lot of that simply because I'm just infinitely curious. And I, I think I was a generalist from the start. I wanted to learn everything and understand how all things were interconnected. And I, I think ultimately that's what I'm expressing through Next Curve. And one of the reasons why I started Next Curve is I wanted to be able to take my the experiences, the knowledge, and the perspectives that I've developed through my career and my professional experience and channel into this, the work that I do today with my clients that are both the large tech companies as well as startups. Mm, interesting. So, and so- yeah, Great um, question, by the way. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a challenge for a young person because, yeah. you know, I mean, if you can get into a company that will give you you know, when I started out of university, I went to work at Pepsi. If you drive yeah. up the 110 in LA, you'll see the Torrance Pepsi plant. There was a right. Buena Park Pepsi plant. There was a Riverside. Uh, and so yeah. I, I ended up kind of getting in, because I studied finance, but I worked in manufacturing. I was interested in statistics and statistical quality control. And so uh, that kind of got me, you know, into an area that, that allowed me to move up. But also Pepsi, you know, was, it, was a, it was a management training program. So they had me rotating through. So the benefit of that was, yeah, I got, a, got to see yeah. a lot of areas. But I, right. in fact, one of the things I say to young people these days is I say, if you studied accounting, don't go work in accounting. And they say, yeah. what? I studied accounting to go work in accounting. I said, yeah. you know, go work in something else. You can always go back to accounting. Yeah. But if you yeah. go into something else and then you go into accounting and say, now I want to change the marketing. And now you're five years into your career. It's a little bit harder. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I, I, that's what I used to advise consultants that I mentored when I worked for the big firms. I told them, look, if you're a fixed assets guy or gal, go and learn how the database and the application works underneath that thing that you're configuring. And mm -hmm. you'll you will thank me for it. Understand how the different modules connect and then how all the different systems connect. And then you start to get visibility to the entire process. And then eventually you have this techno-functional view of things. And then that's really empowering a uh, holistic view of your profession, you know, and what you mm -hmm. do. And that makes you much more, it makes you much more than just, this particular job function or singular path that you do get pigeonholed into when you, you know, first start off. And yeah, you know, you're making a really great point in that it's very difficult for young people to do like what I do, because you, you need to have the experience. You need to have gone through 
and made all the mistakes. And if you want to call them failures, I'm not a big failure fan, but you had to have failed. You had to have succeeded. You had to have done all these things to understand the dynamics of how things work. But then also amass, if you're lucky enough, enough knowledge and experience across many domains to be able to think holistically and perceive things holistically. And I think that that's really important as you look at what we're probably going to be talking about investments and mm. startups and, yep. and, and the bets that they make, which as statistically, they're not really all that great at, right? So <laughs> unless that, you've, unless you've discovered something or someone's told you otherwise. Nope. No, well, <laughs> no. I mean, it's tough. It's tough in the startup world. So let's, oh, yeah. I want to tell the, the listeners out there that we're going to take a different format for this particular interview. And the format is that, you know, I've been doing some work looking into the mistakes that have been made by my guests in the area of startup. Now, some of them have been startup people that have started companies. Other ones are just people that kind of put some money into a startup. So there's a lot of perspective I'm gaining there. And I want to bring that out to the audience. But before I do that, I thought, why not talk to you about some of the you know, most common mistakes that you've seen in startups and how you help startups to deal with those. Yeah, I think one of the, the most common mistakes that startups make is simply not really understanding the market opportunity, not doing their homework. And one of the reasons why they get into this dilemma or this you know, very early phase issue is simply because they're looking at these big inflated numbers, thinking that the market opportunity is something that it really isn't. And so this investment and understanding the ground truth of the market that they're pursuing is often not there. And so as, when I speak to many, many, many startups, vast majority of them have a deficient understanding of the market and what the opportunity is. And I think that's really where you start to get on that path of bad investment, you know, and why there's such a, a challenge. And it's not that things are getting better. It's always challenging because technologies are always advancing. They're converging. There's all these white spaces that continue to form and there are no experts in those areas. And mm. so to think that there is, let's say, you know, with edge computing that a data center, hyperscale data center guy is a, a pro at that stuff. Absolutely not. They don't know what the market opportunity is. And if you think it's a telco guy who's building out a 5G network, they don't necessarily know either. And so there's a lot of head scratching that's going on, yet there's also a lot of market hype, a lot of academic stuff that's also out there that are not necessarily promoting grounded notions. And you have a lot of startups who are basically drinking the proverbial Kool-Aid and also VCs who have this Kool-Aid infused lens that are looking at these market opportunities and not in exactly the right way. And so I think that's really where bad investment starts is when you don't really understand the market opportunity and you are investing time mm. that is going to be wasted up front. And depending on how far you progress down the, the funding path, you're just accumulating money that's probably not going to generate a return. 
So let's look into that for a moment. I mean, I myself, and I'm sure plenty of the listeners have been on this excitement curve where you're really excited about what you're working on and it's amazing and it's going to transform the world and blah, blah, blah. And then if you go and then, and eventually, you know, you, you fall down and, and you end up finding out that you really didn't have something there and it all kinds of falls apart, maybe even before you start or a little bit after you start. Yeah. And then you look back and you go, why was I so convinced? You know, so yeah. what is it that convinces people that they've got such a great idea when you could objectively walk in and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, there's nothing here or you haven't even tested it. So why do people get so convinced that there's this market opportunity or is it just they don't even think about that? Well, I think there's always an appeal and an idea, but there's a couple of things that really determine the actual potential, the value potential of an idea, right? And the first of which is number one, market readiness. So how ready is the market for your idea? And the second thing is technical readiness. And one of the things that a lot of folks, a lot of startups don't really factor in quite well are the economics, right? You have the idea first, but what you haven't done is really thought through the economics in terms of first, the value to your target customer, right? Who are basically going going to be that market opportunity, they're going to collectively be that market opportunity that you're pursuing. And so if you don't consider that properly, I mean, you're, you're really starting off on the wrong foot. And then on the technical side, just really understanding the economics of the technology in terms of cost, right? And sometimes these great ideas, they're not economically viable, So it ends up being a timing issue. So oftentimes we hear, you know, people who have quote unquote, who have been involved in quote unquote failed startups that seem like great ideas. They just end up being timing issues sometimes. Right. And then maybe 10 years down the line, when the technical economics start to make sense, then there's an appeal to that target market and, you know, target customers that you intended to sell to. So that's, again, and it goes back to this, this notion of really understanding the ground truth. So what is the state of the technology? What's the readiness of the market? And if we were to boil it down to two simple principles, those are the two things that really need to be understood, but they're also the most difficult things to get a grasp on. It seems, I mean, that's just my observation. And I don't know what you've experienced or heard through the many startups that you've worked with and uh, spoken to. Yeah. I think that the aspect of the, uh, you know, so, okay, we've got market opportunity. And so they're either they're completely missing it or they're overstating the market opportunity. And the second thing is, you know, whether it's really viable, you said economically viable. And to me, that kind of means like, okay, yeah, maybe you found a problem in the market, an opportunity. But the question is, how much are people willing to pay for the solution of that problem? Yeah. Are they willing to pay a dollar or are they willing to pay a thousand dollars? And that right. affects the economics of it. Right. You know, one of the things I'll, I'll tell it just a little story of my own experience. When the 1997 crisis hit in Thailand, where it originated and the economy was wiped out, and our business, Coffee Works, was only just starting. And so we were B2B coffee roaster. 
a couple of years later, as we started to recover, we still didn't, you know, we still couldn't get the revenue up where we wanted it. And Mm -hmm. we had a meeting of the management team and we just asked the question, you know, do we really believe that, you know, that this is a viable business and whether we can really get it, you know, there. And Mm -hmm. our decision was actually really easy compared to the world of startup because basically we said, this is coffee. (laughs) You know, this is not a revolution. We're not trying to develop anything new. We're just trying to bring this product to the market. And that made the decision so much easier. But what you're talking about is the idea of, you know, is there a market? Well, we already knew there was a market and it would grow. But then the idea is like, you know, do we have the tech to get to that? Will the market pay for that? But we had kind of most of that already worked out, which is what Uh makes tech so hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's the domain, you know, I I'm I don't deal too much with coffee, coffee companies or coffee startups. So I don't have much to say there. I, I am particularly speaking of, or I'm speaking of in particular about technology companies, which I deal with the most. And which so. which I'm just saying it's it's so much harder for a tech company. Oh yeah. Whereas oh, yeah. you know, you're yeah. trying to, you know, you're creating a new space. Now, let me just ask you if you were if you were talking to a tech company, think about the companies that you advise. How do you, and think about the listeners out there that have got their idea and they're, you know, they're trying to figure yeah. it out. How would you advise them to, to understand the market opportunity? You, know, you talk about the ground truth. You know, what is it that right. you mean by this? Yeah, I mean, it all really boils down to learning how to ask the right questions. And so really having a group of advisors who can you know, question the numbers, help you question the numbers and get to the proper understanding of the structure of the market, right? And so when you look at, you know, oftentimes what you see in a pitch deck is some citation of a forecast and say, hey, look, you know, IoT is going to be a $1.4 trillion opportunity. And oftentimes they're they're assuming that that's their market opportunity and they'll get a segment of that, right? Well, when you that's where the problem really starts is they sit there and they pop up this number, but they haven't really gone through the effort of understanding what does that number mean? And then understanding the market definition, how it's segmented, and then getting down to the real TAM, right? A meaningful TAM that they then present through their deck. And one of the big red flags that I always look out for is whether or not these guys, the pitch team, actually understands the numbers. And if they got, if they have it wrong, I know that they haven't done their homework. I said, do you know what what this cloud number really means? Do you know what it's comprised of? And so, you know, here's the thing. The reason why we get excited about this idea that we have is not simply because of the idea is because we think that there's a large market opportunity for it. Right. And that's why we want to start a business and, you know, you want to be the next unicorn. Right. But the thing is, is if you haven't really gone, if your assumption is this big lofty number and you don't have an understanding of it, you haven't kicked the tires on it. You haven't gone through the exercise of really figuring out what that addressable market is for your products. Then guess what? It becomes an engineering prototyping exercise more than a startup venture, right? So, and this is a common mistake everybody makes. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm, do your homework. And that's, a, that, that's an important, very easy first step that a lot of people don't invest in, oddly. I, I don't know why. So 
this is a, you know, you've, you've used an acronym that some people may or may not be familiar with, but we have like TAM, SAM, yeah. SOM, yeah. those types of things. When you say TAM, can you just explain what that means to you? Well, it, it's totally addressable market. So what is that market that is addressable by that particular product offering, right? And oftentimes it's representative of the overall, you know, market opportunity for that company. So to make it more concrete, think about, you just said like the internet of things, it's going to yeah. be a trillion dollar market. And let's right. just say that I'm, I'm designing a thermometer or thermostat, you know, as we've seen yeah. come out and say, we're going to get a piece of that trillion dollar market. Well, wait a minute. Is that really the TAM for this product or how do you yeah. think about that? Yeah. And so if, if you believe in that number, you have to work your way through the entire market model, right? So you have to look at how that, you have to dissect that number into its different segments and then work it all the way down and then put energy into qualifying that particular space, right? Mm. That segment that is representative of what it is that your product addresses in terms of, you know, that big picture or that okay. big number. And it, it's a very difficult exercise. Yeah. And so, you know, just to give you an example, I've seen some folks come in with these massive cloud numbers and I will, after a session with me, they will realize that their actual TAM is a small fraction of the number they came in pitching to me or to have me kick the tires on. And it simply boils down to you. You just went and got a number from a consulting firm or a leading analyst. And it's not their fault. It's a, you, just, you just took the biggest number thinking that that's going to convince me that you know what you're talking about, mm. you know, mm. and no, you have to do your homework and it's not easy work. It takes domain expertise. And especially in a lot of the white space domains, it takes even more than just knowing what's out there today. You have to start to think through, okay, what does this market really re represent? And how do you might have to use three or four different types of market views to qualify that white space opportunity and get to that TAM that that might be addressable for you yeah. and your your startup. And so that that's how difficult this stuff is. It maybe I shouldn't have said that this is a simple first step, but it's yeah. the most critical first step that will save you from and this is good advice for VCs too, because it's not like VCs are really great at this stuff either. Right. I mean if they were, they'd be bat batting more than a hundred. Mm. Yeah. So now let's just look at one little more aspect on this and then we'll wrap yeah. up. The last aspect is let's just say that a startup comes to you and, and yeah, they're, they're off track on their, on their TAM. And then you, you get them down to a pretty narrow market that you think, okay, this is really where you guys are going to be able to compete. Now, how do they then get that product market fit? Let's say that they've got kind of, they kind of know where they're at with that market. And they've got their technology where they're, you know, in the early stages, how do they then kind of test that market or what, what are your thoughts about where they go from there? Yeah. I, I mean, even before, you know, there, there's this whole thing about what, what do they call it? Agile, agile startup, you know, is that what they call it? 
it's agile, but I can't remember. I have a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember it. either, but you, you, you get what We're I'm talking about. not that agile about. anymore. Yeah, no, I'm getting old. So I, I forget all these like, you know, nouveau concepts that keep coming out. But uh, no, lean startup. Lean yeah, startup. this whole yep. lean startup thing. You know, do some buyer's needs analysis ahead of time. Because, you know, one of the, the issues is startups are oftentimes started by engineers. What I've discovered is engineers, they're great at designing cool stuff and they have great ideas. They're maybe not so great at really, you know, running the business side of things or even understanding markets, right? That's something that tends to be a challenging thing. That's not to say that all of them are like that. There's some folks that are very savvy at it and they're also wonderful engineers. I don't want to generalize, but it's something that, that I, I see as a common challenge among many tech companies that I've dealt with or startups that I've dealt with. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's do a buyer's need analysis and validate your assumptions what you think is valuable to the customer may not actually be valuable. And then to discover that through a, you know, this whole idea of a minimal MVP, minimal viable product. I don't know. Do you have to go that far to really understand whether or not your concept will resonate with the customer? There's some, some early sensing that you can do before you, you invest a ton of money into actually building something out. So my advice to, to folks would be make sure that you're always proactively vetting the idea, whatever opportunity that you get throughout the life cycle of, you know, building out your startup and mm. getting to a, a, that minimal viable product. So, yeah. Okay. So now if we, I'm just reminded by uh, one of my guests, his name is episode 308, Andrew Mueller. And uh, he taught me this thing. He says, he calls it the toilet paper, the toilet paper method. And he says, you know, when you are using, no, this is just for, this is just for ads, right? But he says, when you're trying to come up with some advertising for a particular thing, just list down, you know, 10 different ideas of what you would call it, you know, what would be your, your headline. And he said, and then put them on a white piece of, you know, a white picture. That's what he's calling toilet paper. And then, and then just put it out on Facebook. And then see which one of those people click the most, you know, and send it, send them to a landing page and just see which ones people click the most of. And so that was a great example of not even coming up with a minimum viable product, but just seeing would people click and which one of these would they click on and then, you know, developing that. And so I think that's an interesting, you know, angle for not even getting to the minimum viable product. And it reminds me of another story of one of my guests was that he was selling wine in Cambodia and he had to go through all this process of importing, getting the license and setting up the business and all of this. And then he ended up finding out that it didn't work. His business just fell apart. I asked him, what would you have done differently? I said, I I would have started selling. He said, "I, I would have just gone to any wine distributor that's in there already and said, can I sell cases of wine that this guy has? And that's my way of testing, you know, before I go out and set up a business. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, these steps are great risk mitigation (laughs) steps, right? Because the last thing you want to do is invest a ton of money and then just come to this realizing, oh, crap, how come we didn't think about this earlier? And then they end up being fairly easy steps. So this, this whole idea of 
you know, aggressively getting to an MVP and then showing a customer, yeah, okay, I kind of get it. But there's a lot of things that you can do up front to de-risk the early investments. So that's what I would suggest. So being the risk averse guy that I am, as I mentioned, we've before had some we, discussions about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's now wrap it up by just saying, okay, the listeners heard a lot. They've learned a lot. They're thinking about it. They've got a startup. What one action would you recommend that they take to make sure that they're successful? Yeah, I call it flatten the curve. So some of you might be familiar with the Gartner hype cycle. Rule number one, always number one, if you're getting into a hyped market, understand the state of the technology, understand the state of the market, get ahead of it. There's value. There's always value. It just might not be what you think it is. And find a home for your idea you know, whether it's early or it's later in the cycle. But, you know, the thing is, is that you only have so many resources and capital to give it a successful first go. Get knowledgeable about your market opportunity and then target your investments. And then you have a higher probability of being successful. And also you'll make a hell of a lot more sense when you come in and pitch your idea. More likely you're going to be able to raise money. That's yeah, great. there you go. Boom. There you go. All right. Last question. <laughs> What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Oh, to be safe and healthy. That's very good. You've done well That's so just, far. That was right, right off the top of my head. How's that? That's you know? what this podcast is all about. Yep. Being safe and safe healthy. and healthy and helping as many uh, startups as I can, you know, succeed. So where's the best place for people to reach out to you? Um, is it LinkedIn? Is it where would you Yeah. Say? Well, yeah, I, I have quite a large audience on LinkedIn and I'm a friendly guy. So feel free to reach out to me if there's any startups out there who want to get into some of these white space tech opportunities out there. Give me a jingle and uh, happy to help out and advise. And yeah, just look me up, Leonard Lee and Next Curve and my... Uh, my profile should pop up. That's great. I'll have the links in the show notes. So for the listeners out there, you want to follow it up, just click on the links. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another discussion about loss and winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help my listeners reduce risk in their life. So go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and download the risk reduction checklist and see how you measure up. As we conclude Leonard, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for oh, sharing your you. knowledge with the audience. Do you have any parting words? Thank you so much. No, thank you. Other than thank you so much. And I hope that the audience got something out of it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great discussion to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.